Chapter 16 of Murder in the Gunroom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murder in the Gunroom by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 16. It was raining again as Rand parked his car about a hundred yards up the street from Karen Lawrence's antique shop. The windows were dark, but Karen was waiting inside the door for him. He entered quickly, mindful of the all-seeing eye across the street, and followed her to a back room where Mrs. Jarret and Dorothy Gresham were. All three women regarded him intently, as though trying to decide whether he was friend or enemy. There was a long silence before Mrs. Jarret spoke, and when she did, her words were almost the same as Karen's when she had spoken over the phone. "'Colonel Rand,' she began, obviously struggling with herself, "'you must tell me the truth. Did you have anything to do with my son's being arrested?' Rand shook his head. "'Absolutely nothing, Mrs. Jarret,' he told her, unbuckling the belt of his raincoat and taking it off. "'I have never seriously suspected your son of the river's murder. I had no idea that McKenna was contemplating arresting him, and if I had, I would have advised him against it. Besides causing annoyance to innocent people, McKenna's made a serious tactical error. He was misled by appearances, and he was afraid I'd break this case before he did, which I intended to do.' He turned to Karen Lawrence. I talked to McKenna after you called me. He as much as admitted making that arrest to get in ahead of me. I told you, Dorothy Gresham flashed at the others. I knew Jeff wouldn't stoop to anything as contemptible as pretending to be Pierre's friend and then getting him arrested. Rand permitted himself a wry inward smile. He hoped she would not have an opportunity to observe his stooping capabilities before he had finished his various operations at Rosemont. I certainly hoped not. I certainly hoped not. Mrs. Jarret relaxed, smiling faintly at Rand. Pierre likes you, Colonel. I hated the thought that you might have betrayed him. Are you working on the Rivers case, too? Rand nodded again, turning to Dot Gresham. Your father retained me to make an investigation, he said. After that trouble he had with Rivers about that spurious North and Cheney, he wanted the murderer caught before somebody got around to accusing him. You mean there's a chance Dad might be suspected? Dot was scared. Rand nodded. The girl was beginning to look suspiciously at Karen and Mrs. Jarret, Getting ready to toss Pierre to the wolves if her father were in danger, Rand suspected. He hastened to reassure her. Rivers was still alive when your father reached home last evening, he told her. That's been established. She breathed her obvious relief. If Gresham had left home after Rand's departure with Philip Cabot, she didn't know it. Karen, on the other hand, was growing more and more worried. Look, Colonel, she began. They didn't just pull Pierre's name out of a hat. They must have had something to suspect him about. Yes, you shouldn't have lied to McKenna. He checked up on your story. The woman across the street told him about seeing Pierre leave here a little before eleven and come back about half an hour later. I was afraid of that, Karen said. I forgot all about that old hag. There's nothing that can go on around here that she doesn't know about. Pierre calls her Mrs. G. Too. And then, Rand continued, McKenna claims that a car like Pierre's was seen parked in Rivers Drive about the time Pierre was away from here. Mrs. Jarret moaned softly. Her face, already haggard, became positively ghastly. 
Karen gasped in fright. They only identified it as to model and make. They didn't get the license number. Where did Pierre go while he was away from here? He went out for cigarettes, Karen said. When he came here from Gresham's, we made some coffee, and then sat and talked for a while, and then we found out that we were both out of cigarettes, and there weren't any here. So Pierre said he'd go out and get some. He was gone about half an hour. When he came back, he had a carton and some hot pork sandwiches. He'd gotten them at the same place as the cigarettes, Art Igo's lunch stand. Could Igo verify that? It wouldn't help if he did. Igo's place isn't a five-minute drive from Rivers, farther down the road. Has Pierre a lawyer? Rand asked. No, not yet. We were just talking about that. Dad would defend him, Dot suggested. Of course, he's not a criminal lawyer. Carter Tipton in New Belfast, Rand told him. He's my lawyer. He's gotten me out of more jams than you can shake a stick at. Where's the telephone? I'll call him now. You think he'd defend Pierre? Unless I'm badly mistaken, Pierre isn't going to need any trial defense, Rand told them. He will need somebody to look after his interests, and will try to get him out on a writ as soon as possible. He looked at his watch. It was ten minutes to nine. It was hard to say where Carter Tipton would be at the moment. His manservant would probably know. Karen showed him the phone, and he started to put through a person-to-person -person call. It was eleven o'clock before he backed his car into the Fleming garage, and the rain had returned to a wet, sticky snow. All the Fleming's cars were in, but Rand left the garage doors open. He also left his hat and coat in the car. After locating and talking to Tipton, and arranging for him to meet Dave Ritter at the Rosemont Inn, he had gone to the state police substation, where he had talked at length with Mick McKenna. He had been compelled to tell the state police sergeant a number of things he had intended keeping to himself. When he was through, McKenna went so far as to admit that he had been a trifle hasty in arresting Pierre Jarret. Rand suspected that he was mentally kicking himself with hobnailed boots for his premature act. He also submitted, for McKenna's approval, the scheme he had outlined to Dave Ritter, and obtained a promise of cooperation. When he entered the Fleming Library, en route to the gunroom, he found the entire family assembled there. With them was Humphrey Good. As he came in, they broke off what had evidently been an acrimonious dispute and gave him their undivided attention. Geraldine, relaxed in a chair, was smoking. For once, she didn't have a glass in her hand. Gladys occupied another chair. She was smoking, too. Nelda had been pacing back and forth like a caged tiger. At Rand's entrance she turned to face him, and Rand wondered whether she thought he was Clyde Beatty or a side of beef. Good and Dunmore sat together on the sofa, forming what looked like a bilateral offensive and defensive alliance, and Varsic, looking more than ever like Rudolf Hess, stood with folded arms in one corner. "'Now see here, Rand,' Dunmore began as soon as the detective was inside the room. We want to know just exactly for whom you're working around here, and I demand to know where you've been since you left here this evening. And I, Good piped up, must protest most strongly against your involvement in this local murder case. I am informed that, while in the employ of this family, you accepted a retainer from another party to investigate the death of Arnold Rivers. That's correct, Rand informed him. 
Then he turned to Gladys. Just for the record, Mrs. Fleming, do you recall any stipulation to the effect that the business of handling this pistol collection should have the exclusive attention of my agency? I certainly don't recall anything of the sort. No, of course not, she replied. As long as the collection is sold to the best advantage, I haven't any interest in any other business of your agency, and have no right to have. She turned to the others. I thought I made that clear to all of you. You didn't answer my question, Dunmore yelled at him. I don't intend to. You aren't my client, and I'm not answerable to you. Well, you carry my authorization, Good supported him. I think I have a right to know what's being done. As far as the collection's concerned, yes. As for the Rivers murder, or my armored car service, or any other business of the Tri-State Agency, no. Well, you made use of my authorization to get that revolver from Kirchner, Good began. Ah, Rand cried. So that concerns the Rivers murder, does it? Well, when did you find that out now? When Kirchner called you, you had no objection to his giving me that revolver. What changed your mind for you? Didn't you know that Rivers was dead then? Rand watched Good, trying to assimilate that. Or didn't you think I knew? Good cleared his throat noisily, twisting his mouth. The others were looking back and forth from him to Rand in obvious bewilderment. They realized that Rand had pulled some kind of rabbit out of a hat, but they couldn't understand how he'd done it. What I mean is that since then you have allowed yourself to become involved in this murder case. You have let it be publicly known that you are a private detective working for the Fleming family, good orated. How long, then, will it be before it will be said, by all sorts of irresponsible persons, that you are also investigating the death of Lane Fleming? Well, Rand asked patiently, are you afraid people will start calling that a murder, too? Gladys was looking at him apprehensively as though she were watching him juggle four live hand grenades. "'Is anybody saying that now?' Varsik asked sharply. "'Not that I know of,' Rand lied. "'But if Good keeps on denying it, they will.' "'You know perfectly well,' Good exploded, "'that I am alluding to these unfounded and mischievous rumors of suicide, "'which are doing the premix company so much harm.' "'My God, Mr. Rand, can't you realize?' "'Oh, come off it, Good.' Varsik broke in amusedly. We all, Colonel Rand included, know that you started those rumors yourself. Very clever to start a rumor by denying it. But scarcely original. Dr. Goebbels was doing it almost twenty years ago. My God, is that true? Nelda demanded. You mean he's been going around starting all these stories about father committing suicide? She turned on Good like an enraged panther. Why, you lying old son of a bitch! She screamed at him. Of course. He wants to start a selling run on Premix, Varsik explained to her. He's buying every share he can get his hands on. We all are. He turned to Rand. I'd advise you to buy some if you can find any, Colonel Rand. In a month or so, it's going to be a really good thing. I know about the merger. I am buying, Rand told him. But are you sure of what Good's been doing? Of course, Gladys put in contemptuously. I always wondered about this suicide talk. I couldn't see why Humphrey was so perturbed about it. Anything that lowered the market price of premix at this time would be to his advantage. 
She looked as good as though he had six legs and a hard shell. You know, Humphrey, I can't say I exactly thank you for this. Did you know about it? Nelda demanded of her husband. You did! My God, Fred, you are a filthy specimen! Oh, you know, anything to turn a dishonest dollar, Geraldine piped up. Like the late Arnold Rivers ten thousand offer. Say, I wonder if that mightn't be what Rivers died of, raising the price and leaving Fred out in the cold. Dunmore simply stared at her, making a noise like a chicken choking on a piece of string. Well, all this isn't my pigeon, Rand said to Gladys. I only work here. Dio gratis, and I still have some work to do. With that, he walked past Good and Dunmore and ascended the spiral stairway to the gunroom. Even at the desk in the far corner of the room, he could hear them going at it, hammer and tongs in the library. Sometimes it would be Nelda's strident shrieks that would dominate the bedlam below. Sometimes it would be Fred Dunmore roaring like a bull. Now and then Humphrey Good would rumble something, and once in a while he could hear Gladys's trained and modulated voice. Usually any remark she made would be followed by outraged shouts from Good and Dunmore, like the crash of falling masonry after the whip-crack of a tank gun. At first Rand eavesdropped shamelessly, but there was nothing of more than comic interest. It was just a routine parade and guard mount of the older and more dependable family skeletons, with special emphasis on Humphrey Good's business and professional ethics. When he was satisfied that he would hear nothing having any bearing on the death of Lane Fleming, Rand went back to his work. After a while, the tumult gradually died out. Rand was still typing when Gladys came up the spiral and perched on the corner of the desk, picking up a long brass-barreled English flintlock and hefting it. You know, I sometimes wonder why we don't all come up here, break out the ammunition, pick our weapons, and settle things, she said. It never was like this when Lane was around. Oh, Nelda and Geraldine would bare their teeth at each other once in a while. But now this place has turned into a miniature Iwo Jima. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to take it. I'm developing combat fatigue. It's snowing, Rand mentioned. Let's throw them out into the storm. I can't. I have to give Nelda and Geraldine a home as long as they live, she replied. Terms of the will. Oh, well, Geraldine will drink herself to death in a few years, and Nelda will elope with a prize-fighter sometime. Why don't you have the house haunted? The Tri-State Agency has an excellent house-haunting department. Anything you want. Poltergeist, apparitions, cold, clammy hands in the dark, footsteps in the attic, clanking chains and eldritch screams, banshees, any three for the price of two. It wouldn't work. Geraldine is so used to poke-dotted dinosaurs and little green men from Mars that she wouldn't mind an ordinary ghost. And Nelda'd probably try to drag it into bed with her. She laid down the pistol and slid off the desk. Well, pleasant dreams. I'll see you in the morning. After she had left the gunroom, Rand looked at his watch. It was a very precise instrument a Swiss military watch with a sweep second hand and two timing dials. It had formerly been the property of an Obergruppenführer of the SS, and Rand had appropriated it to replace his own, broken while choking the Obergruppenführer to death in an alley in Palermo. 
He zeroed the timing dials and pressed the start button. Then he stood for a time over the old cobbler's bench, mentally reconstructing what had been done after Lane Fleming had been shot, after which he hurried down the spiral and along the rear hall to the garage, where he snatched his hat and coat from the car. He threw the coat over his shoulders like a cloak and went on outside. He made his way across the lawn to the orchard, through the orchard to the lawn of Humphrey Goode's house, and across this to Goode's side door. He stood there for a few seconds, imagining himself opening the door and going inside. Then he stopped the timing hands and returned to the Fleming house, locking the garage doors behind him. In the garage, he looked at the watch. It had taken exactly six minutes and twenty-two seconds. He knew that he could move more rapidly than the dumpy lawyer, but to balance that he had been moving over more or less unfamiliar ground. He left his hat and trench coat in the car and went upstairs. Undressing, he went into the bathroom in his dressing gown, spent about twenty minutes shaving and taking a shower, and then returned to his own room. End of chapter 16